Well, we're going to do what we do sometimes here at church. I call it backwards worship, not that we're going to sing backwards, but the sermon will be in the beginning, and our hearts will engage, and our minds will engage with truth, and then naturally we will respond in worship. Not too many of us seek disappointments and defeats. How many of you like defeat? Disappointments. Okay, I didn't think so. In fact, we don't seek those out. In fact, the last Super Bowl that happened, which was just recently, some of you, it's fresh on your minds, correct? Yes, yeah, very fresh. But the last Super Bowl that happened, I am, I have not yet to meet, there are some, I have yet to meet a Seahawks fan who wanted the Seahawks to lose. Any of you Seahawks fan and wanted the Seahawks to lose? Okay, none. You know, we don't want defeat. We don't want defeat, especially for the Seahawks who had much defeat in their history. Welcome to the club of finally winning a Super Bowl. If you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, forget it. It's not going to happen. We, we don't want defeat. We don't want disappointment. We don't hear someone on their wedding day, when they stand there, they're all ready, the marriage is going to happen, it's all ready to go, and they stand there and they say, I do hope this ends soon. They don't say that. You don't get up there and say, I do hope this ends soon. Woo! Just heard on the news yesterday that some famous actress, well, whoever that is, I'm not sure who it was, they said the name, and I'm not really into that crowd or circle, although I should be, but they said, oh, so-and-so ended the relationship because she just wasn't having fun anymore. Wow. Talk about shallow understandings of what relationships... We don't look for defeat. We don't long for, please give me a disappointment. I mean, it's a bad day for the criminal who gets pulled over and on his shoulder he has a tattoo that says, I hate cops, and the cop sees him as, oh, really? Bad day for him. It's a bad day when the tattoo guy who has I am awesome tattooed on him realizes the word awesome is spelled wrong. Not a good thing. And there, really, there's the picture. It's online. You can see it. We don't long for disappointments. We don't long for defeats. Your first day of the job, you don't wait to get fired that day. Well, I kind of did. The first time I worked at this place, right out of high school, I got a job. And it was this factory, electronics corporation. And I was just a grunt, you know, kind of a guy. And just put you in here. In one hour, I was like, maybe I'll get fired. Because, why? all they did was play country music and I was like I don't know if I can handle this if you like country music I'm sorry love you Ty but really when it comes to true life do you long for defeat no do you eagerly wait disappointment no who wants to be the last one chosen it's interesting on Facebook, social media. Now, a lot of my friends are saying, look at my, my child is number one. Valectoral graduation is coming. Oh, they got number one. Look at all the awards they got. I have yet to see, look at my kid. He was the worst one in school. We don't see that. We don't want our kids to grow up and be losers. I don't want to train my kids and hope that they'll just face defeat all the time. We don't long. In real life, we do not want defeat and disappointment. When I was a senior in high school, 
my friend Mike and I, we were like, it's, we're seniors, let's go to the prom. After asking seniors and juniors and sophomore and freshmen, I felt defeated. So instead, we went to what's Great America. It's the roller coaster place, and on prom, instead of going out with a girl and being sad, we just ate donuts and went on roller coasters all the time. I didn't, I didn't want defeat. I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to fail in life. None of us do. We don't want to fail. If you see on the slide here, even though we don't want them, disappointments and defeats, they come often. And if you live long enough, you will suffer. They come. There's disappointments all around. I get disappointed in my body. This past week, I got sick again. Maybe I ate something. I'm not sure what the whole thing was, but for two days, I was just laid in bed while I got up to visit the toilet once in a while, and just, it wasn't good. Come on, body! We do all we can to stay away from defeats and disappointments. No wonder, here it is, no surprise, some of you that know me well, you're like, oh, here we go again. No wonder Romans chapter, what? Thank you. Thank you. You're all robots now. I appreciate that. No wonder Romans 8 is my favorite. So if you have a Bible, just quickly, just at least turn there. If you don't have a Bible, I've got four of them in the back. Just quick, put your hand up. If you're sitting by a couple of people who don't have a Bible, just get a Bible. We do not want defeat. We do not want disappointments. Romans chapter 8. So profound, so powerful. Love hearing the pages or maybe your finger scrolling across the screen to get there quickly. Therefore there is now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is none. It begins with this important statement and then ends with, take a look towards the end. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Life, death, disappointments, difficulties, dangers, angels, demons... Things presently, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Why is this chapter so important for the Christian life? Well, take a look at the screen, and let me just read you a paragraph from a gentleman named Grant Osborne. In his commentary on this chapter, he begins with this. We have all enjoyed those movies or sporting events that show teams snatching victory out of the jaws of defeat, like Hoosiers and Remember the Titans. It is thrilling to see this happen, but many of us are thinking, yes, but it doesn't happen to me. In the spiritual realm, it should be the normal Christian life. The defeatism of chapter 7 is turned around by the victory made possible in chapter 8. The twin issues of sin and the law have dominated chapters 6 and 7. 
And the last part of this section, 714 to the end, has traced the frustration of attempting to live the Christian life according to the flesh. Here the solution is given, namely, living our lives according to the power of the indwelling Spirit. In a world of suffering, we long for victory. Amen? We long for victory. And please listen. If you understand what it is to be defeated, disappointment, disillusioned, soak in Romans chapter 8. Soak it in. Ten ten days ago, I was at a funeral. And I thought, what can I share? What can I just put to these people who have so many different thoughts going on and people are confused it was very hard young kid and what really just baffled people it was a suicide what do you say what do you think how do you mourn how do you grieve I thought I need to leave people with three words These are words we've thought and talked about in this series with Christ in the school of suffering. And it's these three words. In your grief today, know this. God is sufficient. In your disappointment, in your defeats, know this, church. God is sufficient. Amen? Amen. Today I want to give you four words. Four words that I want you to hold on to as we finish this series on suffering and looking in Psalms. Four words that just are the anchor, the hope, the lifeline that we have. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 110. This psalm is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Very important chapter here in Scripture. And it's a very Christ-centered psalm. We've been looking at Christ in the Old Testament. (coughs) Take a look at the last verse. The four words I want to give you, and we'll talk about these words as we go through here, are from the NLT translation. So if you've got an NLT translation, you're right on. If you don't, if you have the NIV or NASB or another translation, it may be a little different. But here's the four words. He will be victorious. Okay? Now in my translation, and we'll look at why there's a little difference here, therefore he will lift up his head. Here's this Hebrew idiom that shows up often in Scripture. Please know this. He will be victorious. Look at me. In your failures, know this. I'm not here to breathe. Oh, you're going to be victorious. I don't have the teeth that Joel Olstein has and the smile he has, okay? That's not the kind of preaching I give. He will be victorious in your life. 
In your failures, He will be victorious. In your defeats, in your sickness, whatever comes your way, in your joyful time, know this. He will be victorious. Very, very important. God is sufficient, we've looked at, and we want to end with this knowing that He will be victorious. Know this. In my life, my life is to be all about living for God, that He will be victorious. Because sometimes we think it's the opposite. We think that God exists, He's there for my convenience. I'm suffering, I'm sick. Lord, help me out, please. Let me quick go to the wishing well and throw my special prayers and everything will work out and I'll have, have victory. God does not exist for your convenience. Instead, we exist for His glory and worship and fame. He is the one that will be victorious. Biblically, we are to understand and interpret life's experiences. I think I have this on a slide. We are to understand and interpret life's experiences primarily, especially when it deals with suffering in light of the cross. No matter what you go through, think of the cross. Many times it is through weakness and suffering. Think of this. Many times it's through weakness and suffering that God comes to us most clearly. Because many times when you're not sick, you're not suffering, you begin to depend on yourself. You think it's all about you. You then have your strength and skills. You go, I've, look what I've done. Oh God, you can be a part of this. And many times the Lord will come and remove some of those things so we can be more dependent on Him and we can see more clearly our need for Him. Please write that down. Ponder that as you live life. Again, many times it is through weakness and suffering that God comes to us most clearly. And we've been doing that as we've gone the way of the cross, seeing Christ in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a preparation for Jesus, and the New Testament is a revelation and an explanation of Jesus. The Old Testament speaks, when he speaks of Christ, of his victory. And we see this in the gospel message in the whole Old Testament. It began with Genesis 3. There's sin, there's failure. Genesis 3, 17, it's kind of 15, 16, 17, the Lord kind of gives us hint, there will be victory. The promise continues, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, there is a promise given. Abraham, the victory would come through your family, and from the family to a nation, the nation of Israel. There's a promise of victory coming. Then we turn to David and the promise. And in this story of David, with the New Testament lens, we've been seeing this as we're going through the Psalms, we also read the story of Jesus. Many times when we read in the Psalms, we read of David's experience, but through the New Testament we realize it's not just David. We also read the story of Jesus. David is a precursor to Christ. 
a king who would foreshadow the ultimate messianic king. God's promise was given to David that a Messiah would come through his line. And in the books of First and Second Samuel, we see much of the promise that continued to David. And from the line of David would come the Savior of the world. And many times we see these, we've been going through the Psalms, we read these and we say, well, look at this psalm deals with David and his situation. And we, we saw some of the stories that he went through. Even though the passages originally were applied to David and his dynasty and his kingship, we see ultimately that they dealt with Jesus and his kingship. It's interesting when you read through the book of Samuel, David was all about, I want to build a temple for the Lord. I want to do something. I've got this nice house, but I want to build a temple for the Lord. Yet God said that he would build David's house instead and establish a kingdom, his house. Don't, don't worry about my temple. I'm going to build your house. And through your lineage will be something great and powerful and victory. And out of this would come the Son of God, the throne forever. Take a look at the next slide here. We've seen that this Old Testament time is a preparation for Jesus. And we've been looking in the Psalms, and it speaks of and anticipates prophetically and how they fulfill the Messiah. Take a look at the slide here where it shows, I think I get the next slide. You can go to the next one. A little behind here, sorry. There we go. These are some of the chapters we looked at. Some we didn't, but these are some of the main chapters when you look to see Christ in the Old Testament, when you look at Psalms, you stop, and these are some huge chapters that speak. And a majority of these chapters that we looked at were all about the suffering Messiah. The one who would suffer. Yet many of these are what they call royal Psalms. A lot of the chapters that we didn't look at are royal passages. The life and ministry of David's greater son, Jesus, is seen in these chapters speaking of his kingdom. There soon will come one who will be victorious. He will reign forever and his kingdom will be established and he'll be a mighty one. And these have, and here's a big word for some of you, these have an eschatological theme to them. Wow, that's a big word. Basically it means it has this theme of there will be in the end times, there will be this time when Jesus comes and there, it's coming. We're not sure there's this anticipation of it, but when he comes, there will be victory and vindication for his people. And a lot of these passages, these royal psalms speak of this tone of final victory for the children of God. And in the Psalms, they look forward. In the prophets, they look forward. In the exile, when they were taken away into captivity, they thought of, their hope was, in their defeat, in their disappointments, they thought, he will be victorious. They placed their hope on that. This is seen in Psalm 110. 
Let's look at Psalm 110, the first part. Psalm 110. The Lord, and this is David speaking, the Lord, Yahweh, God the Father, the Lord says to my Lord, and this is quoted in the New Testament, speaking of Jesus. The Lord says to, and the the next word here, Lord, if you notice in your Bibles, it's capital L and lowercase. The Lord says to my Lord, my Adonai, my Master, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Who's the one who makes victory? The Lord is the one who who brings victory. Please know that in your life. The Lord is the one who brings victory. Victory is divine. It's not who you hire as a quarterback. Because even if you have a quarterback that seems all nice on the outside, they can go through tough stuff, even a divorce. Correct? And much prayer should be given to people like that. No matter who you put on your team, no matter what strength you have, no matter how much you work out, When it comes to real life, true victory is divine. It comes from the Lord. And we've seen this in the gospel according to Exodus. Victory in the Old Testament is always divine. The Lord will use human agents sometimes to work out himself. Sometimes he says, I'm done with human agents. Let me show you my power. Turn, keep your finger here. Turn to Exodus 14, 14, which you've all memorized, right? You remember this because we we spent nine months in the book of Exodus. Turn here. Know this passage. Uh, Write it down. Etch it into your memory. Get the tattoo, whatever it takes. The gospel message. The gospel chapter, I believe, Exodus in the Old Testament is Exodus 14. It shows up throughout all of the Old Testament. Whenever they speak of the greatness of God, they just go, boom, Exodus 14. And the heart of Exodus 14 is Exodus 14, 14. Remember this? Know this. Taste this. Live this. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. How is victory? It is divine. It comes from the Lord. Amen? Know this passage. Go back to Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Here is this image where the enemy is defeated. Victory is divine. And the enemy is on the ground and the Lord places his foot on his neck. This is how it was. Right on the enemy's neck and just be like, who's the champion? Who is victorious? Who won? The enemy, his head, his neck is my footstool. And I have won. Here's this metaphor of absolute 
control. When I was a kid in high school, I listened to Christian rock and roll. That really was against my Baptist background because, boy, even Amy Grant was bad back in the day. And where there's, there's this band from England that had this album, and he was they had his cowboy boots on. I guess that was cool. I, I did have a pair of cowboy boots, and I guess I do like country music. No, just kidding. Okay. And he was dancing, and the, some, some artist drew a picture of the devil, and the song was Dancing on the Head of the Serpent. Victory is divine. No matter how powerful this world comes with its wickedness, its pain, and its evil, no matter how much the enemy himself will come against us, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen? Victory is divine. It's not about me. God does not exist for my convenience. I exist for him. Victory is divine. In fact, take a look at this. I, I put this. I think I have this on the slide. The Lord is victorious over his enemies. Just in this passage alone, we see, look at verse 1. I will make your enemies a footstool. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter. And here, this, this is a symbol of powerful kingdom. This shows up in Genesis. This shows up in Psalm chapter 2. This powerful image here is the kingdom is going to come. And the Lord is the one who extends it. And this is, He will rule in the midst of your enemies. Verse 2. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of His wrath. Verse 6. Judge the nations and crush the rulers. Verse 7. The NLT. He will be victorious. You have to know this. In defeat, he will be victorious. In sickness, in the midst of cancer, he will be victorious. In the midst of death, this past week, Kay, who's not with us today, her sister-in-law passed away. Pastor John's brother-in-law passed away. In the midst of all this he will be victorious. Amen? John Calvin says this, A shepherd is gentle towards his flock, but fierce and formidable towards wolves and thieves. For his children, he is gentle, and he will be victorious in your life. That doesn't mean you're going to win the lotto, and that means all sickness will be gone. He will be victorious even through sickness and loss. Amen? Throughout Scripture, the Lord is always victorious. And in the end, we are to know that He will be victorious. Even the last book of the Bible. Some people love that book because it's scary, it's ambiguous to some people. The book of Revelation, not Revelations, the book of Revelation is all about the victory of God. Sure, there's some things we can look in there and go, wow, there's some things we can speculate, we can wonder, we can, man, there's a lot of prophecy, whoa, we can get, you can get into that stuff, which is fine, but know this above all, from the beginning to the end of this great book, God is victorious. In fact, chapter 19 and 20 of Revelation, 
You think this great big battle, this cosmic battle, Satan himself, God himself, come and clash together. We get this, you know, maybe Spielberg could do a great movie in just hours like Lord of the Rings. How long does it take to throw the ring into the thing? Come on, let's get it done. Hours of battle and just here it comes. That's not the way the book of Revelation shows it. God comes, bam, it's done. Victory, it's, it's done. Throw it like a fire, it's over. He will be victorious. This is something you should just walk around and go, amen. Fireballs can fall all around you and you just go, he will be victorious. Your house could burn down, you could lose everything. But at night you can go, he will be victorious. Your pillow might be soaked with tears, but still you can say, he will be victorious. To pain and suffering caused by sin, the Lord is sovereign, the Lord is sufficient, and he will be victorious. For some of you that deal with cancer, the Lord is sovereign, he is sufficient, and he will be victorious. The next slide says, the Messiah will be victorious. As I said, this chapter here is the most used chapter of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is used often, speaking of the Lord, the Messiah, and other things, and it's saying that the Lord, Jesus, will be victorious. This son of David, the Messiah, will also have his enemies subdued. Jesus will live this out. He brings the ultimate and final victory in his birth, his life, his obedience, his death and resurrection, and in the events of the final days. In all of this, he is victorious. I love 1 Corinthians 15.25. It says this about Jesus. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. Here's that symbol again. Foot on the neck of the enemy. He will reign. And that's what Psalm 2 speaks of. There will be a scepter coming from Zion, from the lineage of David. Let's look at verse 7, which speaks of it in a great way. This last part. In my Bible, in fact, this week when I worked on this passage, I'm kind of old school. I get a piece of paper out. I get a pencil, and I've got different hardnesses. I'm really nerdy when it comes to this stuff. I've got different hardnesses for different types of way I write and stuff. I'm just, and most people just pull up their computer, their apps, and do all that stuff. I'm just old school. So when I worked on this passage and translated this chapter, I got to the end, and basically there are two words here. He will lift up his head. And that's what I wrote out. He lift up his head, and I kind of looked at some of the Hebrew and kind of thought, and then I thought, where else is this found? This, is, this sounds familiar to me. Turn to Psalm chapter 3, one of my favorite psalms. Which one is not my favorite psalm? Psalm chapter 3. High school, this was just, I memorized this one. This is great. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many are they that rise up against me? Many are saying of me, 
In the King James, it's, there is no help for him in God. God will not deliver him, it says here. Verse 3. Remember, 1 and 2, reality. There is true disappointments. There is there are enemy. There, there's defeat all around us. Verse 3. But thou, O Lord, are a shield around me. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. What, what does this phrase mean? Go back to Psalm 110. God fights and gives victory. He's the one that lifts up this person's head. He is the one that, here's a way, restores honor and gives victory. Here's a phrase, lifting up the head isn't like, woe is me, lift up my head. This Hebrew idiom means God brings victory. God brings us true victory. God makes the king triumph over his enemies and he will be victorious that's why we have in the nlt he will be victorious listen to this will he be victorious in your life submit to him and if this is real here's a phrase i say often how could you not worship him forever how could you not say instead of brats and burgers on the grill monday let's just gather and sing worship songs he is victorious sure we we should gather around and, and pray for the military pray for our family members honor those who served think about those who've passed on but think of christ every day and worship him he will be victorious. Not only in the cross was he victorious, but he's coming again, amen, to take us home. He will be victorious. How could you not worship him all the time? And here it is. Please note this and write this down. And I wish we could spend tons of time on this. Jesus provides all the resources that we need for understanding suffering, which leads us to worship. That's why this has all been about with Christ in the school of suffering in the book of Psalms. He is the means and the mode of worship. This ultimately comes to worship. And here's the great line. He fulfills, think of this, look at this line, the space, and that was the location. The Old Testament they had a specific location to only do worship. He fulfills the space. He fulfills the acts. They had all these different things they had to do. They had to do this for this kind of, this kind of grain sacrifice, this kind of festival. They had to do all these certain acts. He fulfills that. He fulfills the space, the acts. Only certain persons could administer certain things. He fulfills that. And the time. We don't have to just gather on a Sabbath and wait till then. Every moment every location, every type of way that we can, in a sanctified way, worship Him. How could you not worship the victory of the Lord? And it would be very fitting for us today to do that by taking communion and worshiping the Lord. Before we begin to 
think about communion, I want to say this about communion. A few things. One, our church, we have open communion. Some churches have what they call closed communion, where it's closed and it's only for those who are either members. Well, how many of you who are a member of our church? Well, we don't have membership yet. We're working on that, so woo, good thing we don't have that. Or some say, well, it's, it's closed only for those who follow a certain creed and, and you have to be you know, baptized in the church and they have a lot of stipulations. The way we understand Scripture is this. If you have trusted Christ, believed in Him as your Savior, come to the table. Remember Him. If you are in the midst of sin right now, there's a caution. Give up that weight that so easily entangles you before you come to the table. You can walk a thousand steps away, but it's one step back to the king. Amen? So maybe today you need to go, I need to repent. I need to say, I'm sorry, Lord. Or I need to say sorry to someone in the room. Another thing about communion, many times communion is a somber. It should be. In fact, to me, this is just my opinion, I think I'm kind of correct in this, communion... Holy communion is one of the most sacred things we can partake of this side of heaven. I don't think I'm too far off on that. It's one of the most sacred things we can do. So we should, when we take communion, not just be like, oh, let's just slam them down and let's party. This is a very serious, sacred thing. We remember, we honor Christ, and we worship Him when we do this. So many times when we take communion, it should be a very somber solemn, sacred thing. But here it is. It should also be something that we celebrate. When we take communion, there should be this anticipation of, whoa, Christ died for me. He was broken for me. His blood poured out for me. Praise God. I'm free. He's victorious. I have freedom. I have victory now in my life because what he has done, celebrate him. Does that make sense? So how can we be solemn but also woo you know? So hopefully today when you take communion, just be solemn but also be, he will be victorious. Because of the cross, I am free. And someday he's coming for me to take me from this sin-ridden place. Amen? He will be victorious. So celebrate with us as we celebrate the Lord.